This is my throaty alto. It is. In uh, cardiograph form. Yeah, I can see that. Hey, hi, Sarah Hevla. Hi, Nancy Ryan. See, usually we have to do this, um, we have to do this across the great divide this, that is our, our great country. But right now, I'm actually just looking at you from across a table. I could touch you if I was a little <laughs> bit taller. <laughs> And very short arms. Here we go. <gasps> oh, we're touching. It's like it's like uh, it's like the Michael. It's like the Michelangelo. Um, this this is Teen Chapel. We are touching. If you could see us, audience, we are touching fingers. Good morning, Sarah Hepla. It is the morning after, isn't it? It's the morning after so many things. Yeah, and I'm eating. Um, I'm eating blueberry pie. And I'm for eating breakfast. a chocolate chip cookie. Both of which I made because we had a little um, we had a little shindig here last night at Paloma Media in honor of Sarah Hepla gracing our. Our beautiful city. Mm-hmm. And then um, we got up this morning, of course, just kind of, that's me opening a beer. No, it's not. It's a seltzer. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, we started talking and I realized that I had a lot of um, spleen to vent. So I thought we might we might do a little of that. Is that what one does with a spleen? I think you do. I think you vent your spleen. <laughs> that uh, Yeah. In the olden days, yeah. you know, the women actually had to vent their spleens themselves. <laughs> they didn't even have <laughs> machines to do that yet. <laughs> What That's is, Pioneer what, House. I learned that from Pioneer House. What is a spleen? Wait, wait a minute. Wait, what is a spleen? It's a it's a thing that you hurt if you're drinking too much. Okay, so you you vent it. Yeah. Okay. Um, you, you heard it here first. You don't have to vent your spleen because you did not drink last night. No, ma'am. No, we didn't have we didn't have really bad behavior here last night that I remember. Well, unless it was me and I. I there was remember. a little there was a little drunkenness towards the end of yeah. the evening, but it was nothing out of bounds. No. And um, the, really the craziest thing that happened was uh, two things happened. One thing before was when uh, we were prepping and I spilled seltzer all over your floor and all over your books. My books, yeah. And that That's was right. like a catastrophic, like it was a small mistake that like in, like I watched in your eyes <laughs> The the like silent frustration that I would not stop stepping out onto your balcony to smoke cigarettes. No, the thing about and the catastrophe that it brought with it, and you you worked very hard to just swallow it. It went to your spleen. It went directly to your spleen. Well, what I liked is when you first walked in my apartment. You're like, oh look, you have like a a terrace or a patio. I was like, yep, that's called a fire escape yeah. here in New York I, City. I like to call it a balcony, a Juliet balcony. Yes, and you have spent more time on that. On that Juliet balcony than than I have. I, I do sit out there sometimes in the summer and uh, and read, you yeah. know, in the in my nightgown, which I'm actually sitting in right now. Yeah. So um, we were sitting at the table just now this morning, um, uh, talking about um, somebody said, you know, oh Jada Pinkett Smith, she's a monster, or Amber Heard, she's a monster, and I'm assuming listeners that we all know who we're talking about here in terms of. Um, who Amber Heard and Jada Pinkett. Nobody knows who Amber Heard is. I would not make that assumption. That's true. I've had, I keep having to go to Wikipedia to find out who she is. To remind myself. So she is the, um, the ex-wife of Johnny Depp and they are now in the middle of a very public and public it's on court TV. Is it like it, it, it it's streamed, on YouTube as you, far as I'm concerned. It streams like eight hours a day of, of court testimony so um, they were together years ago. They've been divorced for a while, but they keep going back at each other. And at this point, and I'm sure our listeners know about this. We've talked about this before. Um, she wrote a piece in uh, 2018 for The Washington Post about how 
um, women's voices have to be heard in when it comes to um, sexual abuse and or just abuse. And, uh, you know, they haven't been and we sweep this under the rug. And she does not name him specifically. But the reason her voice is there is because she was the, you know, nobody really does know who Amber Heard is. But at that moment when, you know, when Me Too was this cyclonic fire literally burning down everything in its path, there was a message and she became a messenger. And I've told you this already. Like, I I don't believe that she wrote this piece, but whether she did or not, or however many teams of PR people wrote it, um, it is now four years later. And he and his attorneys have come back and they are filing a $50 million defamation suit, not against the Post, against oh. against her. Um, and I think she's doing some sort of counter suit. So. W- what is that one about? I don't know. I don't like that you sued me. Is that a suit? I yeah. mean, it's basically, but I, I seem to remember it's $100 million. Like it's she, $100 million. She was like, I will double your, I will meet you, Johnny Depp, and I will double your number. So you said something interesting the other day about a friend of yours, and we won't go into what it was, but she said she felt like her child's behavior was matching the algorithm. Is that what it was? She said her mood is the algorithm. Right. So, you know, if you're a teenager, right, uh, and, you know, I remember we all used to wear cons, con, you know, high, Chuck Taylor, high high top con, converse. That was the, the shoe in seventh grade that you wore. And then all of a sudden this girl, the new girl in school who was just absolutely gorgeous and a great athlete and we admired her and she was just so cool. She had pro kids. Okay, so now everybody needed to get pro kids. And that is what teenagers do. They kind of like, and then, you know, people do this when they're grownups too. It's like, oh, I'm going to have a short hemline this way. Oh, I'm going to have, you know, gold hair and it's going to be red hair. And we expect teenagers to do this. And when you told me this about your friend, I said Amber Heard seemed to me to be a sort of avatar or figurehead for the algorithm. Like she, she had this moment to be a spokesperson for our cultural moment that was Me Too, and she took it. You're using algorithm as a sort of synecdoche for the cultural mood or trend setting or fashions, which is an interesting thing. I think you're right. Well, that's because we are now, because the internet is, is, you know, these ideas, that's how they're spread now. It's not in Vogue magazine anymore or however we used to get our information. Uh, That's how it is. And it becomes very, because we don't actually have to embody it, we can just say we embody it by clicking. You know, we just click it. I am, a, you know, I remember, I don't know what year it was, maybe 2016, when Me Too first came out. It was like literally like the first day it came out. Who was it? It was the actress. Um, Alyssa Milano. Right. And um, I was on Twitter. I wasn't on Twitter as much as I am now. Um, but I saw it. And it was a very small, tiny thing. And it was like, well, raise your hand. Or just, you know, type hashtag Me Too if you've been, you know sexually abused or raped or whatever. And of course, it w- I mean, I don't I don't think I know a woman practically that has not been in some way, shape or form and, and everybody did. And then it became a very, very, very big deal, as we know, um, with the power to, um, you know, it's even hard for me. I don't like to throat clear about me too. I don't, I don't like to do this anymore and say like, well, of course the no, the goals were noble because those goals are should be baked into every human being on the planet since the beginning of time, that you don't do terrible things to women or to men, that you don't abuse people, that you you when something happens, you 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 listen to it. You don't sweep it under the rug. But in my opinion, um, 
it went bananas. And can I interrupt you? For yes, a second? please. But the goals were noble. The goals were noble, Sarah. Sarah Hepler. Uh Well, you know, if the goals look, I've written this before. I wrote, uh, I wrote a piece um, a couple of years ago when uh, um, Andrew Cuomo was trying to pass a uh, what was it called the um, the laws where where if you don't remember if you were sexually assaulted, then you can bring the case anyway. I, I can't remember what it's called, and I was like, well. This is very, this is very disturbing to just, oh, I know what it was like. You have to believe people unconditionally, whether they remember it or not. We were talking about this a minute ago. Anyway, I think Amber Heard became part of this mm -hmm. movement, made some of her bones. I think probably when she wrote that piece, oh, when she became part of that, I don't think she was probably thinking too far ahead. It was a moment. And it was a big, gigantic cultural moment. Well, it's come back now. I mean, her catastrophic undoing with Johnny Depp predates the hashtag Me Too. She was already in the midst of a really messy divorce by the time that happened. What the hashtag gave her was a cause and a name to hitch her wagon onto on her own crusade to get whatever it was she needed or is looking for. Do you think that she, I kind of think that maybe people that were pushing that crusade found her. Yeah, that's possible too. You know? Because they needed really, they needed big figureheads. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know how that works. I wouldn't even pretend to know. All right. So she writes this article, comes out in 2018. He comes out now. He's He's suing her for defamation. And we are now... I haven't I haven't listened or I haven't watched very much of the uh, of the trial. Um, I've listened to some of it. It's incredibly moving and disturbing. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about it? You've you've certainly you've certainly listened to it more than I have. Yeah, I fell asleep watching some of the video the other night and it absolutely woke up with like a haunting. It was like I fell asleep and it was that weird thing where like you fall asleep as you keep waking up for like little patches of it. And it was these text messages he was having with the actor, Paul Bettany. And it was like, they were talking about drugs and his absolute loathing for his wife and how sad they were. Like, it would just be like, can't, you know, can't drink anymore, mate. I can't tolerate this odious behavior in myself. Oh, and then the next one I'd like fall asleep and then I'd wake up and it would be like, C-word, Amber, you know, and I was just like, oh, my God, what's happening? Is this happening in was my life? Was he drunk when he was doing these things? Unclear, and I'm, okay. not, I'm not a good narrator on this because yeah. I'm going in and out of consciousness. Okay. All I know is that the next morning I woke up and I felt so haunted, like, because I realized, you know, when I finally turned it off, it had been three hours because it's seven hour. It's like you were listening court. to a song all night or something. And well, it's, it's like, like, you know, when you're supposed to fall asleep to like mantras or things that like are supposed to make you feel really good. I did the opposite. I fell asleep to like the worst, ugliest, like divorce. And all those messages were like filtering into my brain. And I woke up just with this like totally weird, bad energy um, that was so strange. And I, I had to spend a lot of time trying to shake it off. It was great because then you woke up and I was like, oh, okay, well, I talked to Nancy. I talked to number one Nancy. I talked to number one Nancy. Um, we, uh, I wanted to go back real quickly to the thing that prompted you to want to talk about this. It wasn't just your spleen. It was a little exchange that we had where I said, 
people call Amber Heard a monster and people call Jada Pinkett Smith a monster. And that's very uncomfortable to me because I don't believe that anybody is really a monster. I believe very few people are. I don't like it on either side. I don't like it when it was done during Me Too. It was done a lot to men for their behaviors that I thought were sometimes criminal, sometimes immoral, oftentimes asshole, but were fairly explicable if you examined with any intellectual honesty the cultural waters in which they'd been swimming, whether that was Hollywood or media journalism or 1970 or, you know, like if you were, in other words, a lot of these behaviors were made sense given the people's either backstory or culture that they were in. So I always hated the idea that we did this and we called them monsters. Well, now we're starting to see people call women monsters. And you could say, oh, look, the conversation is finally changing. It is. We're getting a little bit more like you and I were saying, we're finally getting like some female villains. Yep. This is something that women have been complaining about in you know movies and books for many years. Like we don't want flat, you, you know, uh, they're just always good. Like nobody's just always good. Nobody just tells the truth. That was what was so insane right. about the idea that you just have to believe women. It's like, can you really actually, who with any straight face would make an argument that half the world's population just tells the truth. Well, it's like when you say you have to believe children, children don't lie. It's like, are you Jeez. kidding? Have you met a child? Do you that's, know how many I lied? That's it. But exactly. It's like, of course, the women lie, men lie, children lie. And they um, have imaginary lives and they have, they don't even know sometimes that they're lying. I mean, this is just so facile. So while I believe that Amber Heard's uh, conduct is just like, odious to me on so many levels and I just haven't really gotten at like who she is or why she is or what her to me whenever I'm hearing stories like this my urge is always to understand I'm just so much less interested in who's to blame that's why in some ways trials are very boring to me because they take human complexity and they flatten it down to one person's going to take the blame I don't like that I see that in Twitter all the time and I think it's gross and I think it's uh to use a word of yours, anti-human. I mean, I think the idea that one person in any kind of negotiation is to blame for everything doesn't make sense to no, me. No, but I'm going to flip something on his head. Well, two things. First of all, calling anybody a monster, it's like, please use use your words, okay? This is like, this is shorthand. It's like, we don't know what to call somebody. And I, I find this ridiculous. It doesn't tell me, it's like when you're a writer and you say, oh, she's beautiful. Well, I don't know what that means. What does that mean? I don't know. I don't see her. To call someone a monster, it's just, it's, it's, it's not descriptive, and I think it's it's lazy. In terms of you know a trial, and it's one person. I have a very you you said something that was very interesting to me about um, the the trial, uh, and you said, well, what you know, why is Johnny Depp doing this? And you're like, well, maybe he's doing it just to just to get his side of the story out. It's this kind of it's kind of genius in a way. It's like you know, not only will he be able to sort of like really. Um, unroll and like slowly and thoroughly, you know, tell whatever story this is. But I'm going to go one step further. I'm going to say that we have lived for the past, you know, four or five years through a lot of Me Too stuff, a lot of people's lives burned down, a lot of people not knowing how to act. I don't know how many 
people you know, I know, like men who owned companies, they're like, I don't even shake a woman's hand anymore. Okay. I just don't because I do not know where this is going to lead. You hear stories about mothers talking to their sons and saying, look, do not, do not try to kiss that girl in seventh grade. Don't do it because it could come back. And of course, you know, we hear these stories, but I'm going to maybe wonder if the whole Amber Heard, Johnny Depp thing is a chance for us communally and culturally to take the past five years of Me Too and put it on a stage and say, all right, we're going to look here at this. Of course, it's only one particular case and it's a very he said, she said, but it's going to give us a little bit of a broader stage and maybe a little bit of perspective about how you can't just say, he's the monster, believe all women. It's actually doing what journalism was, was supposed to do, which was explore both sides of a story. And the phrase both sides has become weaponized to be actually like a really negative thing. Like, how dare you be a both sides or what? Nobody ever says that. What do they say? Both, they accuse you of both sidesism. And I, but I'm just going to interrupt you. As journalists, um, the idea that you would not explore both sides is so unethical to me. I mean, we've had this conversation a lot. I, I sit with, you know, Matt Welch and we talk about this. It's like, if you, you're not going to be curious, curious enough to find out what this story is really about, you really should go get a different job because we are not fucking PR agents. That's not what we do. We don't pick a cause and then write about it and cherry pick our information. And I think we have lived through a lot of that. Can I also say that it? I think it's a, a little bit reductive to say that there's only two sides. Of course, no. There but, are of course in, there are so many sides to so many right, stories. Right. So right. the idea that it's really just exploring both sides seems like also sort of reduction to me. But I. I've always wondered, ever since I heard about this suit, I wondered why he filed it. He must be familiar with mm, libel and defamation cases. They're incredibly hard to prove. Yep. That story was written in a way that is very hard to make that a winning case. And and, it, and deliberately so. Exactly. And I when I, I thought about it and I was like, why would he be doing this? He lost his case in the UK. He will probably lose this one. But then as I watched him over the first few days... He was such an interesting uh, witness. He really took his time. He, at first, struck me as very slow and almost like you could see the destabilizing force of him not having lines to say, where I was kind of joking with a friend of mine that he just seemed like somebody that was caught on stage and was constantly wanting to yell, line, <laughs> you know, off, off into the wings. But as I... Mm, tuned into his mood or kind of settled into it or he settled into it, I found him to be an absolutely rapturous um, speaker. You described his voice as mellifluous, yeah. which is right. Um, I find him not stumbly, which is interesting. I find him to be very, it's measured and it's a little slow, but he kind of, you know, when I first started listening to him, I was like, wow, they really prepped him really well. Like he's going to hit all his beats. But he's hitting beats for hours and hours and hours. You can't you can't memorize that. That's much exactly stuff. right. You might have not seen some of the stuff that I saw because okay. it was early on. As he goes on, he is so sure-footed and so careful in his words, um, casually poetic in a way that I found not pretentious, which is pretentious is a word I would have associated with him. 
because of his love of the beatniks and his obsession with Hunter S. Thompson and yeah. a lot of people that I have sort of complicated feelings yeah. about and don't entirely love, not as much as he does. Um, I found his story about his childhood to be utterly compelling. The stories of how he came to addiction to be so memorable as I... I think like one of the most memorable stories I will ever hear about how somebody became a substance abuser. Yeah. Um, the story that he tells is that his mother, Betty Sue, used to take nerve pills. That's what she called them. That's what she called them. And when he was five years old, he used to procure these pills for her and he would give them to her. On the bag that was hanging on the, he, it used to hang on like a doorknob. He's like, her purse would hang on the doorknob and she'd say, go get my nerve pills. And he saw the way that this settled her body. Mm -hmm. And that when she was disrupted and upset, that she would take these. So at the age of 11, he finally makes what strikes me as a fairly logical next step, which is if these are working for my mom, why wouldn't they work for me? And he starts taking them. He makes a reference to the idea that he has never used drugs and alcohol to party. He doesn't even really understand it. Now, this was very strange to me. I still don't really get it, but I but I actually, I want to listen to what he's saying here because it's pretty quietly profound, which is that all the oceans of alcohol that he's drank, all the drugs that he's taken, all the things that fall under the umbrella of, quote, partying, He's telling us they were just to numb, that all it's ever been has been to numb. Well, I, so my, my late ex, my daughter's dad, when I met him, he was a very, very heavy drinker and had grown up with full-blood native guy, just where he grew up. Like that, he, he used to say to me, Nanny, I, you would, you used to say to me like, oh, I'm going to meet my friend for a drink. He said, we never said that. We said, we're going to go get drunk. And it was definitely to keep away like the pain. Then he, he stopped drinking uh, when my daughter was two. And he and I split up and he never had another drink and that was great. But he had a lot of, his body was really racked up. Like he'd been a stuntman and this and he had different internal things and he um, smoked pot. And he said, I don't do it to get high. I do it so I can just feel normal. So I don't like, so everything's like not hurting all the time. Now, I, you know, whatever. And I think he also liked being high, but also it got to the point, especially when he got sicker and got cancer. Um, he wasn't getting high. He was just oh, getting sure. normal. Like he was not in racked up with pain. Yeah. And, and I understand that I relate to that. It's just that for me, alcohol was a way to get high. It was a way to get low it was a way to get normal. It was a way to go sideways. It was so many, it was a door to so many things that when I hear, like I absolutely drank to party. Like I loved partying. I also quietly sat in my apartment alone and drank two bottles of wine while watching reality TV. Alcohol was company. Alcohol was solitude. Alcohol, like to me, it's so multifaceted. It was like Sybil, like the 16 personalities. Remember that? Absolutely. I loved that movie. Um, <laughs> and and the thing is, is that... Um, so I'm going to just interrupt you. If, if Hi, everyone. Um, you are listening to uh, Smoke if, if You Got Him podcast. And if you don't know, this is Sarah Heppler. I'm Nancy Rommel. And Sarah wrote a book called Blackout. Uh, 
remembering the things I drank to forget. And you have been sober 11 years. And so when she's speaking about alcohol, she's certainly uh, has walked around and, and thought about it. Nancy, that's the first time that you said our podcast name. And I don't want to ding you, but you did stumble. I, stum I did. Bit. I stumbled. You want to say it? Go ahead and say it, Sarah. Our podcast is called Smoke em If You Got Them. That's right. And actually, this is the first one we're calling that. So welcome. We're glad to have you here. Um, let's let's go back to um, let's go back to Amber and Johnny a little bit, because what I the reason I wanted to jump into the studio is because we were talking about um, vilifying women. We've had two wives in the past month, Jada Pinkett Smith and Amber Heard, who are being painted as these sort of villainous wives by, by some people, by some people, not by everyone. And I and it, and it does seem to signal a little bit of a pivot in the Me Too conversation. Right. And I said to you at my when I was serving myself a piece of blueberry pie here, I wonder if one of the reasons we're so riveted is because we haven't for a long time for the past four or five years really been allowed to say the woman was at fault because if you said you didn't, if you said anything sort of negative, not anything, of course I'm exaggerating here, but you could be burned down if you said you, if you, if you try to paint her at all in the villainous role. And we have seen this. I have experienced this in my own life. If you doubted someone as I did, as I said, you know, I don't think Aja Argento is the best face of me too. This was not allowed. You were not allowed to say, though, of course, she had a, her, she had, that's interesting. She had her comeuppance, in quotes, in 2018, right when she was with Rose McGowan, the face of Me Too, because it was, it was revealed that she had slept with a 17-year-old. And of course, he was behaving terribly badly and exposing. It was just a big, gigantic, gigantic mess. Her boyfriend, uh, Aja Argento's boyfriend, um, Anthony Bourdain committed suicide during all this. It was, I wrote about it. It was a disaster. Can we take a pause real quickly? Yeah. Because your listeners know your story with that, that essay, but I have people coming to this podcast that know me and don't know your story with when you wrote about Aja Argento. Yeah. Can you briefly describe what happened to your life? Oh, sure. Well, it was kind of, um, so I wrote about, I for Reason Magazine, I wrote a piece just ba basically, it was, they, they called it Time's Up, Aja Argento, because she had, it's interesting because I'd met her many, many years before when she directed this film uh, where this young boy was a star. Later on, she wound up sleeping with him when he was 17. Uh, then Me Too came along and he was a sort of flailing young actor, I guess, in his early 20s. And he basically said, I'm going to go public with this. And she denied it. And then there were pictures. And then Anthony Bourdain started to pay him off to keep him quiet. And then he was going to go to the press anyway. And Anthony Bourdain killed himself. And he did go to the press. And it was a big, giant mess. And meanwhile, she's the figurehead of Me Too. And um, people defended her. People were like, don't, don't say anything bad. You can't say anything. And then when it, the pictures came out, like, what were people going to do? And she, if you if you notice, she just kind of like receded into the woodwork. You don't hear about her anymore. Like, you still hear about a Rosa McGowan or other people that were big in me too. So anyway, I wrote a piece about it. Um, and and so people know she was one of the figureheads of me too because she had had a Harvey Weinstein story. Right. And she featured prominently and came on the record in the New Yorker piece and the New York Times piece. Right. But, and the thing about the, the you know, why her, her Weinstein um, uh, incidents were complicated is that the first one, 
according to her, was definitely him being a pig. And I don't know exactly what it was. If he wanted to go down on her, I think it was. And she let him and she didn't know what to do and this and that. But then she carried on like a 10-year somewhat consensual relationship with him. I don't think relationship would be the thing, but they slept together occasionally. Okay, you know, this is what grownups do sometimes. Why she would feel like she still needed to do this when she lived in Europe and he lived here, I don't know, but she did. And and that's really not for me to even judge. People have their reasons, and if they feel that they can't not do it, I'm sorry they, that they felt that way, but she did, and so we go on. Anyway, I wrote about it for... Um, I wrote about it for Reason Magazine, and this gal named Leah McSweeney was writing about it for Penthouse. She had a column, and then she and I met, and we met at a Reason gathering in L.A. We really liked each other, and we started a little video podcast, um, which was called Hashtag Me Neither, which was a provocative name, um, but the, the conversations were interesting. Um, we The first one was, was exactly about that. It was about how you have to try to put some balance into me too, because of anything that becomes powerful, anything that becomes powerful, like you can take aspirin and it's great, but you can overdose on aspirin too. And the Me Too movement became such a powerful, powerful thing that people either misused it sometimes or mistook it for what it was supposed to be. Or, you know, I also had these things happen to me and now I'm going to go back in the past and trying to rectify it. Okay, that's fine. Um, but also there were people that used it for their own their own ends. And to think that that doesn't happen is just incredibly naive. Like you said, is it is it the case that no woman ever in the history of women is going to lie? This is, this is absurd. And women are fantastic liars. They're fantastic. And, and they also, it, it became, it became a way, and not just in Me Too, in, in a lot of other areas that we saw kind of cascade. And I think a lot of this had to do with, a lot of this had to do with Trump because everybody, not everybody, but many people in the country starting in 2015 when he was running, we seemed to fall into this fever, right? We were all infected with this fever. And how are we going to like work out these this, this, these maelstroms that are inside of us. And um, and one of them, we channeled it into Me Too. And others, it was like accusations of, you know, racism that might be there and might not be there. Um, in any case, I was had this podcast. Uh, it was video and we were goofy and we had terrible tech and we did it on YouTube. And um, that was one of them. And then another one we talked about um, why Aziz Ansari was not the same as R. Kelly and that you have to look at these things Everything, there are grades, there are nuances. There are, you're absolutely right. There's not two sides to the story. There's a billion sides to the story. Why are we telling this story now? Why do you, every editor, Sarah and I have ever had is like, why this story now? Mm -hmm. Okay, why are we paying attention to this thing now? Like our Kelly shit has been going on for like a decade, mm -hmm. but now was the moment. Aziz Ansari, you know, there's a mistaken bad date, which we might in another time call regret sex, mm -hmm. which they never had sex. I they no, right. But regret engagement or yeah. whatever. And, you know, we've all had them. I mean, I'm if you haven't, good for you. But, you know, most of us have been like, what am I doing here? This is ridiculous. But I didn't turn around the next day and say, this person will now publicly pay because I happened to go home with someone that I felt icky about. I called that, that's called icky sex or whatever you want to call it. Um, so what happens when... And it, and this podcast. So this podcast, hits. I do it. I do three episodes and a former, God, I've talked about this so much. It's so stupid. A former uh, employee of my husband's who had quit 
five months earlier, not in uh, unhappily, um, decided that my podcast was uh, dangerous to the employees of my husband's business. And it was Portland, Oregon in the beginning of 2019. And this was a red meat for the alt press. And which was interesting because I was a pretty well-known writer in Portland. And um, I had only been writing for people. I'd had a book come out. Everybody's super nice to me. And all of a sudden, it just became a very big, big, big story in Portland that I was a, you know, what, what, I'm a misogynist. I'm a rape apologist. I'm, you know, which was no, no one saw the episodes. They didn't need to. They would just, they decided I was the villain, the villain. I've always thought I, you were a rape apologist. Yeah, though. that's me. Um, the, I was the villain. And, um, you know, they couldn't take it out on me necessarily because what are they going to do? I write for, you know, the Wall Street Journal. I'm like, they can't take away my career, but they could take away my husband's career. And um, they, uh, they sank the business. Um, the, all they called all the wholesale customers, which is where you make money. And, um, he was a coffee roaster and said, you will drop this company. And if you don't, we know how to do this to you too. Sarah, Sarah's coughing now. Um, she has a chest cold. Um, I mean, I know this because everybody, it wasn't just like the cafes stopped buying coffee. It was like the person that washed the dishcloths. It was the girl that made the vegan brownies it was the person that uh serviced the espresso machines and finally like i guess an espresso machine needed uh needed servicing at one of the cafes and a guy that worked for my husband keeps calling like, when can you come by and the guy wrote in an email which i saw it's like i can't my wife won't let me my wife won't let me work with your company anymore so um the company slowly it just died um it took a while um but you know it was it's real and um, it's the craziest story. And it, it mostly makes me fear for my own future and what this podcast will do. Well, it's well, you <coughs> this is the thing. I mean, I I'm, you know, speaking. That was a joke, though. So, was it good? I'm glad it was a joke because I think, OK, this actually tracks with what we're talking about. It is not 2018. It is not 2019. Enough people have kind of been able to kind of look at the landscape and say, you know, maybe that fever that we had was a little, <laughs> was running a little too hot. Maybe I was like burning down things that maybe we shouldn't have burned down. We also, what else did we have happen? First of all, Trump's not president anymore, even though he tries to still pretend he's president. Um, we had COVID where we had to, we all got kind of knocked to the side. And I think we also, <laughs> look, if you have this, um, is it called, arrow in your quiver or a quiver in your arrow. If it's an arrow in your quiver. Arrow in your quiver. This arrow, this arrow was so, man, it could hit the bullseye. It could hit anybody in the heart and take them down. And it did. Maybe sometimes for good, maybe sometimes for evil. But, and people don't want to ever give up that arrow. That is a good fucking arrow. This is my arrow. I bring this arrow with me. However, at a certain point, if you overuse that arrow, which I think in some cases has been the case, whether you're accusing someone of racism and they're not, whether you're accusing somebody of, 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 of abuse and they didn't do it, people, that arrow is no longer quite as powerful. You've got to bring some credibility now to your story, I think. I think we've come to a time in the culture, and I think the Depp heard case is a little bit kind of doing it all for us in a sense where it's like actually maybe we should 
maybe we should actually look at what happened. Now, we might come to the same conclusion we would have come to if we just, you know, always believed the accuser, but we not, might not. And maybe we're, maybe we're curious for that, about that at this point. You know, something that strikes me as we're having this conversation is that Amber Heard and Jada Pinkett Smith are the complicated female characters that I think audiences have been clamoring for in movies and books, uh, which is to say that I, mean, I, I don't know much about either of them. I've In both stories, I've concentrated more on the man. Well, they're more well-known, too. Because they're more well-known. Yeah. But I actually think both those women are super fascinating, and I would love to know more of their backstories. I would love to know how they were created. This is why I, I have such an allergic response to the idea that they're just a monster, because I think actually they're super fascinating. But it's really interesting to me that there's been this clamor for unlikable and complicated characters in fiction and movies, while at the same time those same people are sort of adhering to a company line that all women would be telling the truth and how dare you cast aspersions on yada, yada, yada. That's an interesting uh, contradiction that I hadn't really identified before now. But maybe this is where, this is an opportunity. I mean, these are in these are the female villains we needed. These are the female anti. Let me. I don't like villains either. Yeah. No, it's a short. These are the female to- anti heroes we needed. These are your Tony Sopranos. These are your Walter. What's Walter's name from ba- Breaking Bad? Walter White. Walter White. These are your Don Drapers. You know, interestingly, in the in the real life, at least celebrity matrix, they are the side players. They are the side pieces. We only know their more powerful husbands. In both cases, it seems that even though their their husbands have enormous amount of money and power, they have also allowed themselves to be bullied and abused in ways that we don't normally associate with those positions of power. I wonder if like, you know, again, you're absolutely right. Like, I don't know very much about Jada Pinkett Smith. I don't even know if I've ever seen her act in anything. Amber Heard, I I know she, apparently she was an Aquaman. I didn't see Aquaman. So I don't know anything about her. I wonder if we are, you know, it, it always was the case, like quick to, quick to vilify. You know, women have been, it, it's, it's kind of, too easy to vilify them. And now maybe I'm looking for reasons or we're looking for reasons or the culture is looking for reasons to make them look bad. We're only looking at a little tiny piece, like Jada Pinkett Smith. Like we looked at her particular reaction on that stage. I I saw someone that treated her husband terribly. I saw someone that treated her husband with contempt. And we had a conversation about like when you start to, you know, treat your spouse with contempt in public, it's over. Like you can't, you can't go back from that. That was right? actually an observation that a therapist had made in a book. That's right. Or in the the happiness guy, Arthur. Uh, Arthur C. Brooks. Right. And um, I I wonder, uh, you know, am I giving, uh, we, we've talked about Pinkett Smith before, and uh, am I giving her short shrift because I don't know anything about her? I'm just seeing like these worst little moments. Am I cherry picking the moments that are, that, that have been, well, sure, I am. I am because I'm not, you know, I haven't decided to make a study of Jada Pinkett Smith, but she has not shown herself to be uh, a supportive spouse, let's put it that way. Well, it doesn't take a, a, a huge imaginative leap for me to imagine that she could be a very good friend. She could be a very good mother. She could have, um, you know, facets of her behavior that go far beyond what we've seen in those that narrow aperture of those two clips. Sure. Well, I just, I, I would like people sure. to keep 
in their head the complicated idea that she could exhibit monstrous behavior and be, in fact, still a fairly decent person. Now, let's jump over to Heard for a second. One thing I said to you, because I did watch a little bit of the, I guess it was the first day of the trial, and I, I guess everybody does this. Like, if you're a murderer and you go to trial, you're not going to go in your, like, murdering clothes, right? But <laughs> that's... What, what, I don't know. I now <laughs> want to watch that trial because I want to see some murdering what, clothes. What, but, um, you know, she sat there in her bow blouse, and I thought, wow. Explain what that means. Okay, so a bow blouse is a, you know, pretty conservative, like... It's got a bow at the neck, like a big, puffy, floppy bow. And it's, you know, it's kind of, um, I don't know, like secretary 1980s kind of look. It's it's definitely feminine. It's definitely not va-va-voom. Um, she's like 40s feminine, though. Is that right? Like, yeah. I mean, like to me, it's, I mean, it's actually downplaying your sexuality in a sense. 100%. It's like Victorian. 100%. You know? I yeah. mean, she can't, she can't be the vixen on camera. I mean, if you look at she is a beautiful woman. Oh though. my god! If you look at pictures of her, like when she's all dolled up and they're out at things, I mean, she's amazing. She's stunning, and she wears like she's you know she's wearing Stacked the tata like, yeah, dresses yeah, yeah. and everything. But she's you know she's got to now, and that, this is normal. Of course, your attorneys you're not going to wear the vavavoom dress to court. You're going to be the person that can look uh, very vanilla and very calm and uh, like you are you know the aggrieved party, maybe let's say. She looked, it was interesting to me that she chose that outfit. I do find myself slightly sidetracked each day that her outfit changes, thinking about why she chose that look and her cha her hair changes every day. Yes. One day she had a real Veronica Lake look. It was absolutely gorgeous. But I saw a commentator saying he thought that she had chosen that to shield cameras from getting her uh, facial expressions because the cameras were coming from that side. In other words, the day before she'd worn a ponytail and they got a lot of her side angles. Huh. So maybe her lawyer was like, that's, we don't, we don't want that yeah. much of it. Mm. Or just to look. But also it was, I was, the guy was like, obviously she wore this to um, shield away the cameras. And in my head, I was like, obviously she wore this because she looks amazing. Also, it doesn't strike me that movie stars are going to want to shield themselves from the cameras. I mean, that that's, that's not what they do. She did have this thing too, where like he was telling these moving heartrending stories about his childhood and she was sitting there with this weird chilly look on her face i couldn't read it no she i i know yeah because that's really the only parts i've watched of the trial um she sat very um stone-faced but weirdly it almost looked to me as he was talking like her features seemed to sink in like not sink in like oh i'm getting it meaning like they actually seemed to sink like her eyes sort of looked like they she was looking um she was looking not attractive um, as she listened. And I wonder, you know, if you were sitting here telling me a very, very difficult story and I was just not having any expression whatsoever, that's got to be doing something inside to me. Or you'd be like, that's really weird. Why am I telling this incredibly difficult story and Nancy is sitting there like a piece of cardboard? And she was. That's what she did. And I, I, I don't know if she was directed to do that. I'm sure she was. But wouldn't you, I mean, sorry. It's very hard. Oh, I'm sorry. It, one more thing. Just like, look, I, I don't, I have no idea if they really fell in love. I don't know how much of this really, I, I don't know. I wasn't there. None of us was there. We can't say. But if you have loved someone and you know their secrets and you know their hurt 
And now they are telling the world the certain, yes, of course, it's because it's a court case. And yes, maybe he's doing it to look sympathetic. But like, wouldn't you, wouldn't there be a part of you inside like, oh my God, I remember when he first told me this, this is killing me. It's yeah. fucking killing me that this man that I loved is talking about the hardest things that happened to him. And I have to sit here and not react. I mean, I'm, I think I'm giving her, I'm trying to make her more tender to him right now. Maybe she doesn't feel that way. Maybe she feels like he's just, uh, oh yeah, he's going to drag that thing out. He's an actor. I would imagine she's sitting there thinking he's that he's acting right now. Um, I will say one thing that I would like to know that you cannot quite tell from the court TV. How many times is he making eye contact with her? Because in my, it looks like he's not looking at her at all. It looks like he is entirely avoiding eye contact and she is staring directly at him, oh. which is a very fascinating dynamic that does not sit well for her. It just doesn't look good. She looks like, he looks like a victim by virtue of the fact that he won't make eye contact with her and she has a chilly stare. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but you know, it's interesting, you know, in other cases, I mean, I've been, I've covered, you know, murder cases. I wrote a book about a woman who threw her kids off a bridge and in in court, man, did her husband or ex-husband and mother-in-law, did they stare at her? Like they stared and she was the one that couldn't make eye contact. Yeah, I mean, you can interpret it both ways, but because, um, I mean, like, you could interpret it as um, an admission that he's not telling the truth because he can't make eye contact with her. I mean, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't interpret it that way. I interpret it as he either fears her, does have contempt for her, or doesn't want to interrupt his flow by acknowledging her presence in the room, which would I would say mostly the third. It's very hard to know. It's also possible that he is making eye contact with her and I can't tell. We're just not seeing it. You know, the more we talk about this, I the more I kind of do think that this is like a referendum for the country in a sense of the past four or five years of Me Too. I think this is our chance to stand back and have other people <laughs> sort of um, really lay it out. I, I mean... Why are we watching this? First of all, I like Johnny Depp. Like, and you, you had a thing with Twenty One Jump Street, but I certainly didn't spend much time thinking about him. I mean, that makes one of us. <laughs> but I am interested in how this is playing out for a lot of reasons. I think it's actually might be kind of important for how we start thinking about this moving forward. If it doesn't become just a circus, I mean, I don't want to, frankly, and I have no idea. I don't. I'm not particularly interested in making this freaking OJ trial, which of course I'm, I'm yeah. not trying to, I'm not trying to equate the two things at all. But you know, I'm not interested in watching 600 people get on the stand. I'm interested in these two. I'm interested in these two and how they're going to address this. You know, I think, I think you're right about its significance. The significance snuck up on me because it actually began as fatigue. I had a certain fatigue about this couple. They'd been in the tabloids for a long time. I happened to have really loved one of the I mean, I, I loved Johnny Depp as a young woman. I felt a little bit heartbroken by losing him to sort of celebrity drugs or whatever sort of hijacked him midway through his career. Um, when I first heard that it was going to be televised, I just had this sinking feeling of like, why do we need this? What is wrong with the world? Why do we need a televised 
you know, stupid, contentious libel suit. 100%. And now, and, and I'll tell you what, it only took five minutes of testimony before I was absolutely sucked in and I have not stopped watching or thinking or talking about it except for the, you know, pauses to do things like hang out with you and, and you know, but when I'm like walking around New York, I'm listening, listening, I'm listening and I'm listening to Nick Wallace, uh, who is a British journalist who does, uh, has done his own little podcast on, I say little cause they're short. Um, he's doing a podcast on this where he, and he's on site and he also covered the UK trial. He's really been, he's been very, very What's his good. name? Nick Wallace, W-A-L-L-I-S. Okay. You can follow him on Twitter. Following on tw- him on Twitter is a really great way to get a download on the trial that doesn't take over your life the way it has for me. Cause I will actually watch the seven hours yeah. of the court testimony. But if you want to just get the little dispatches, he's really, really good. Um, he, it's funny cause in the podcast, he calls it the celebrity trial of the century. And I'm like, uh, that's a little bit of a presumptive close there. Like, I mean, first of all, it's 2022. Uh, let's, let's tap the brakes a little bit, but I actually think as the more I'm listening to this, the more I think there is something tre- tremendous there's a pivot point going on. You yes. called it a referendum and I think that's really smart. And I do think in the way that celebrity has always been a sort of carrier for our social anxieties, uh, you know, whether it's movies or uh, tabloid dramas, they allow us to care. They sort of become a Rorschach of the social anxieties and and conflicts of the time. I think this is this one and and also the Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith saga are going to do that for us. There's a lot of things in our culture right now that we're working out around gender roles, men and women, violence and sexuality, addiction and uh, numbness, frankly, um, as well as things like monogamy, uh, fidelity, loyalty, devotion. How much of these things do we think we really owe one another because we moved from a society of duty to one of individual freedom and self-care? And how do we want a marriage with all its trappings around duty and vows to work into this modern construct that is still a part of our lives, which is marriage? So I actually think these two stories, but even maybe more so, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard are are really profound because I also think the the Depp and Heard story is going to bring in a lot of other stuff about celebrity, celebrity. and addiction that have been working their way through the Me Too story, but only through one side of it, which was the male side. And it was only, you know, it was never about, well, because... <laughs> I would be a rape apologist if I asked a question like, what was she drinking or what was she wearing yeah. or what was your role in this? Yeah. See, I'm from AA. I'm an AA kid. So <laughs> I'm, a, I'm almost 12 years in those chairs. And one of the things they teach you when you sit down is you can have your story and I'm sorry and all that. But what was your role in this? That's right. You, you what, what, yeah. Uh, when, whenever we have a friend, uh, and, um, when something was going on with the business, like my husband's business, he didn't like, and the friend would look at us and say, that was your fault. 
if something happened that you didn't like, like uh, a manager was not like counting the bags of coffee or something, it's like, that's your fault because you had to be, you have to take responsibility. And I don't like the word fault because I just have an allergy to it the way I have an allergy to blame and things like that because it feels so final, which is why I like the formulation of what was your role in this because Same. Yes, I, I yes, feel yes. that fault can be shared. I mean, it's just the idea that one person is at fault and another person is not. Again, that's a legal construct. That's not, yep. that's not a moral construct. So when you, I actually, I mean, I guess I'd heard that the trial was going on. I haven't paid any attention to it at all. And you're, you were the one you're like, oh yeah, it's coming up. I was like, oh, okay. And then you're like, and it's going to be televised. And I was like, oh my God, who I, I, my first instinct was like, oh my God, what kind of, what kind of, you know, parasites would do this? And then I was like, oh, wait a second. No, he wants this televised. He wants this televised. And he wants to get his story out. I, and I think it's, it, I, I'm with you. I, I would have had no particular interest in, in paying attention to this, but I very, very, very definitely have paid attention to the people in the culture that have been burned down by like a Jonathan Kamen, who you can look up his story in Reason Magazine, and I've written about it. I've written about, um, you know, people burning down Kobe Bryant when literally the helicopter was still on fire. And, you know, these are these are complicated stories that bring up a ton of emotion. And for a while, we were not allowed. I mean, I well, why did we meet? You wrote a story for The Atlantic called, you know, Things I'm Afraid to Write About. I've been writing about these things and, you know, sometimes there's a little, they, they get a little reaction. People don't like it, but I stand by it. I stand by trying to look at all the sides. And I think that this Depp Heard thing is going to offer us a lot of ways into this particular dynamic at this time in the culture. Something really sad happened because I had this really brilliant thought and I was excited about talking about and then you it. Were eating and cookie. then I started eating a cookie and I swear to God, the cookie pushed the thought out of my head. The cookie is so good. I make very pushy cookies. They're they're yeah. chewy and delicious. And I'm just so sad because I really swear to God, I think it was really good and it was gonna pop. It's gonna come back. It is gonna pop the top off the Depp Heard thing. Um, I have another issue, which is that I have to go to the bathroom. Okay, you can do that. Um, can we, we pause this? Uh, we can just, gonna, just gonna sit here while you go do that. It's okay. I can't, no. You're not I, gonna keep it on there, are you? Yeah, we're gonna cut it out. Okay, so good, because I don't want anybody to be able to pee. Yeah, go, pee. yeah, yeah, that's fine. We're, that's gonna be the highlight. Actually, we'll have some listeners that that um, is actually the okay, highlight. Okay, fine, put it on yeah, subject. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's our OnlyFans page, babe. Um. So what can I tell you? We're sitting here in Paloma Media Studios in Chinatown. Um, Sarah Heppel usually lives in Dallas. I am here in New York City, as as some of you know, though I will be traveling uh, to uh, your parts of the world potentially pretty soon. I'll be in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. I will be in uh, Houston, Austin, and Dallas, Texas. So if you are around those parts, we can say hello and maybe have a drink. And uh, what else happens in the studio? Um, we do the Paloma Media podcast here, uh, the Fifth Column guys uh, tape here, and actually, not usually all three of them in the same room, but they were here last night, um, and they all taped an episode, which I'm sure is going to be out before this one will be. Um, again, this is our um, our new podcast called Smoke 'Em If You Got 'Em. Look, Sarah, I filled up the time, and and we didn't hear anything. We didn't hear anything from the bathroom. I knew this was going to happen the second I sat down. I remembered it. Do it. Um, 
when I first heard about this trial and I, I saw the Washington Post piece and I was like, he's not going to win this. Why is he doing this? This is so much money. And then as I watched the trial unfold, I realized he is not interested in winning this case. He's interested in getting his own self-respect back. He is He's doing this for his family. He's doing this for his children who are getting bullied about th who their father is, who are being made fun of. He is doing this for, it is a win for him to be able to get his self-respect back. And that is a fascinating idea. that He is very possibly going to lose in the court and win in the court of public opinion. So what do you- Which is a Christine Blasey Ford situation. This is why I also thought, like, like I think Christine Blasey Ford was a very interesting cultural moment where people learned more about how trauma works, how trauma creates a super recording. Like she had this incredible testimony and it really changed hearts and minds. Now it didn't get the effect that a lot of people wanted. A lot of people that were on that particular side but it was a profound moment. I think something very similar is going to happen, I hope, and, but I really do think, with this Johnny Depp trial, where we're going to start having a conversation about one of the things that I think has just been so unbelievably lacking in the Me Too conversation, because it's inconvenient in some ways, is violence against men. And you and I have talked about rape and the unreported incidences of rape and molestation among men. But the other thing is women abusing their male partners. And when that is called abuse and when that is just called, that's my wife. And when that is called, you know, uh, goading and when like, like I, I posed an interesting hypothetical to you this morning, which was like, if you have a dynamic where there's a woman and a man, let's say they're both drunk and she hits him and she hits him and she hits him and he's not going to do it because he doesn't hit women and she hits him and she hits him one more time and he bops her. Yeah. Is that abuse of women? See, I would say no. <laughs> I would say, look, <clears throat> I'm going to assume that he didn't clock her like with all his, you know, 190 pounds of weight. Um, Let's say it left a bruise. <clears throat> though. Well, if it left a bruise, I mean, I don't know if she left a bruise, um, but I would, in that instance, if I were that woman, I would say, what was my role in this? What was my role in this? Uh, I hit my husband five times and he hit me back. I would say, well, maybe I don't want to hit my husband because I don't want to get hit. I mean, I, I the idea that then you would say, I have a case here. It's like, well, well, but why? I mean, if let's say it's two kids in the schoolyard having a fight. Does it change? Who started it? Uh, How it, do you start it? Okay, there's what two, starts what? There's two girls. There's two girls in the in the in a, in the schoolyard, and one hits one five times, and then the other one hits her. What? what how is that particularly different if it's men and women? Now, obviously, we're talking about a difference in strength usually, but how is that? Why should it be different? Is the question. Yeah, see, to me, all these questions that get worked out in legal settings kind of get at the one of the larger contradictions and problems of modern life, which is the idea of male and female equality, when there is such biological difference. 
This is something we talked about in our first interview when we were talking about blackout and the way that alcohol affects women differently than men. You can't drink as much. The idea that that we're equal or that women should be able to do whatever men can do is such a powerful and important and animating idea for our time, but it has these huge kind of like logic pitfalls. Yeah. I mean, there and, are, and the idea that we're, that we're equal is in some ways patently insane because the, <laughs> the bodies were made through evolution or whatever, however we got here for one to penetrate the other and impregnate the other. I mean, and then the other one can bail. Yeah. This is not fair. And whether you want to say that women have a gift of childbirth or women have a curse of childbirth, what they have is uniquely their own that will never be experienced by men. I agree. Of course. I mean, oh, wait, I'm sorry. Did I just, (laughs) did I just like run afoul? (laughs) God damn it. I already um, canceled. I cancel myself. I mean, I I love the fact that men and women are different, and like this, the dudes are going to be better at this, and I'm going to be better at this other thing. But in terms of in terms of um, in terms of violence, um, that's a complicated issue. I mean, we it's you know, most of the time, it's a really really bad fucking idea for a dude to hit a, a gal. Like, there's no doubt about it. But if he's getting slapped around, I don't know. What do you do? I guess you walk away. I mean, I guess that's what you do. You just walk away. I mean, if we were sitting here right now and you kept hitting me in the face, I would probably walk away. Really? Yeah. What would I do? Twist your arm? You'd hit me back. You know. We're equal. Yeah, I understand that. But I don't want to hit you. I don't want to hit you. I'm trying to think what I'd do if you hit me. I would try to stop your hand. Yeah. And actually, actually pretty good reflexes. I could probably stop your as you came to swap me, I could grab your wrist and I, and that would be it. But, um, okay. We're not going to get into that. So okay, I was fascinated by yeah. that hypothetical well, though, well, which is have what you, happens okay. if we scrap have, and who wins. Have you, have you had fistfights? You know, this is such an interesting, we talked about this the other day. You and I asked you if you'd been punched and you said that you had been. Yeah. And I said that I hadn't been. Yeah. And later I thought about this and this is something dark that I wasn't really prepared to reveal this early in the day, but I have been punched. Okay. Many times by myself. What? You, I, you, I punch myself. You still punch yourself? I've done it. I did it like a week and a half ago. I don't even know what the, this is like. It sounds a, like a Steve Martin movie or I something. I know. It sounds funny, but it's actually sad and I might cry. Um, It's a way of releasing anger. And when I get so heartbroken, like I am a borderline, uh, maybe you would say like self-harmer. I don't know what it is. What it's, a, what it's trying to do is it's an attempt to equalize the outsides and the insides. So if something like a week and a half ago, I got news that that upset me so deeply, I didn't know how to metabolize it. You, you were talking the other day about FEM, female uh, emotional. No, fast emotional metabolism. Fast emotional metabolism. Yeah. Which I have. But there are things that hit me so deep that it's like I can't metabolize it. And I don't have a lot of anger at anybody else. I have anger at myself for maybe choosing to do that thing or fall for that person or whatever it is. And so this is not, I I don't want to sound like I sit around punching myself. I don't. Um, But I have on more than a dozen occasions punched myself in the face. Uh, And it is an attempt. It's the same reason your dad punched walls. Yeah, But But this is is very interesting. And I want you to hear it. 
therapist will tell you that male anger is directed outward and female anger is directed inward. And I know you're not technically a woman. I know. And so that is maybe not how you work, but a lot of women, and this is why we see such a high instance of self-cutting, uh, self-harm, eating disorders, women direct anger inward. And I am 100% that way. I don't really know how sometimes to get angry at people even if they hurt me. And so what I do is I punch myself. Well, I would like you to stop punching yourself because that I've never even heard of this. I mean, I maybe like in a movie I've seen it, but it's not. I mean, I yeah, you've seen it like a TV show. Someone's like smacking themselves in the face. But I mean, I remember in American Beauty, <clears throat> the the Annette Benning character does it. Yeah. Well, I don't do that. Um I, but I agree sometimes it's hard to tell people that you're angry at them, but often I'm like, well, why? I'm probably angry at them because I'm really angry at myself. So, you know. I just don't <clears throat> have a way to offload. And I didn't mean to like drop a really heavy and uncomfortable bomb into our first episode. <laughs> but as, as Johnny Depp would call it, laying a grumpy which oh, was, let's not you, let's not talk about that. Okay, I won't talk I, about I, the grumpies. Let's not talk about that. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, but can I just real yeah. quick? Um, but I did think that was interesting because one of the things I've observed with women is the way that we shred ourselves and shred ourselves, and it's we are so critical of ourselves, so hard on ourselves, and then a lot of times, and I think with in these in these situations, it will sometimes come out on the men in our lives. And in it, men that are safe, men that we can do that to because they can hold the anger. And so I think that's one of the things that's happened. I don't know enough about these two relationships. I've just seen it in other relationships where you are so furious with yourself and you offload it onto the husband if he's safe enough. But the big one and the biggest one is the kids. You offload it onto the kids and and you let them carry it and and it was clear to me in the story about Johnny Depp that that's what his mother was doing. Yeah, She was offloading it to her kids because she couldn't carry her own sadness. So I don't have those places to go for better or worse. So it all stays with me. Everything stays in house. And I, I do not have any intention to continue punching myself. It sounds disgusting to me. But I just do want to say whatever my system has worked out to equalize in, in moments that are so utterly challenging that in other moments I would have drank my way yeah, yeah. through them. And that is no longer an option for me. That things like that. I, let me tell you the good news about this story. I am very weak and I never even leave a mark. Oh, good. Yeah. Uh, I will just for, because people are going to be like, when were you punched? I was, um, I had a terrible boyfriend when I was 15 who was mentally ill. Like I didn't know it, but he was. And uh, he hit me and then another time chased me down and kicked me in the face. And I had two black eyes. Not good. But of course, uh, I couldn't tell anybody because, you know, you never tell your parents anything. I didn't at least. <clears throat> and I remember um, going to breakfast. My parents were, uh, they were divorced or separated in a, going to dinner to breakfast with my dad and I'm like sitting in a diner booth across from him and he's looking at me 
and just looking at me. And I was like, oh, you know, you know, the door here on the diner. And it, this was actually true. It was this like, um, just like a push door, but it was on a spring. And it would sometimes like weirdly like spring back and hit you. This was like actually true. It was the diner where we were at. And I was like, yeah, I was coming in and it, it hit me between the eyes. And I, I got these black eyes and he just looked at me. He looked at me for about 20 seconds and he just let it go. And if I had told him what had happened, he would have fucking, he would have found the guy and broke off his leg and hit him over the head with it. There's no doubt. But, and I've written about this in Queens of Montague Street, which is a little a memoir that's on Amazon. You can go get it. Um, it was like, sister, you got yourself into this. You can get yourself out of it. And I did. I did. The next time the guy came after me, I uh, I ran out onto my Juliet balcony, <laughs> the fire escape at my mother's house, and I screamed and the cops came and uh, took him away. And that was it. It's so interesting to me. Um, I have never been in a relationship that got even close to violent. Well, can I just preface this by saying there was no, there There's was no, no, it wasn't like he was, he was mentally ill, like a, a sick person. And he, um, he came from a very violent home. I guess he'd seen his father do this to his mother, I guess. I don't really know, to tell you the truth. I mean, I was 15 and then went on about my life. I, I think I met his mother once. And, um, you know, but I have to tell you, like, first of all, I'm fine. Uh, second of all, you know, you, you learn something. It's interesting. I was here... Uh, I'm not going to say who it was because it's her personal business, but we had someone here at the party last night. And uh, one of the ways we became really friendly is she was at the time when I met her, had just been involved in something like that had happened to her. And I was like, oh, yeah, OK, I get it. We're just go through this and it's fine. And then you're never going to do it again. You're never going to be in that position again. Yeah. And, you know, obviously, obviously, uh, there are uh, women and sometimes men, as we know. Um, who live this life and are killed. You know, they're killed. They live it and they're told that they're trouble. They have no way to escape. I was 15. I lived with my mother. I did not have kids and 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 had no money on my own because I depended on my husband. I mean, one of the, I think the first book report I ever, like a real book report I ever read, I wrote when I was about 15 also was about women in abusive relationships. And the thing I remember was this one, he was like a I'm going to botch all the details, but it doesn't matter. He was like a dentist in, you know, in Scarsdale and they were well off and he got his wife down the, by the pool and he hammered out her teeth. Now, there is no scenario in the world where it's like, well, look, it's kind of legit that he hammered out her teeth. There's none. Like, there's nothing. It's just an absolute cycle of sickness and abuse that, that people get in. Well, I'm very fortunate I did not do that. But I also learned very, very quickly, I'm never going to be in that position again. And I never was, you know? So um, for me, it's not like a bad thing. It's just a thing that happens. No, it's a very interesting story. And I mean, it makes me think that, you know, about the ways in which, look, we are animals at our root. We have violence. We have anger. We have these things, whether we want them or not. We live in a civilized society, and the question is, where do you put them? And women tend to swallow their anger. I drank mine away. I would have told you for many, many years that I didn't even have anger. I... But wait a second, Sarah Hepla. Not, not you particularly, but I have to say, in my experience, I've known a lot of women. Other women I know do not swallow their anger. They can get really fucking testy. 
with me, with their kids, with their spouses. I mean. So can I tell you, they're swallowing the root source of that anger and they're offloading a bunch of bullshit onto people. Well, how does it, how's that different from a guy? I don't know that it is. I'm just telling you. Okay. All right. I, I do think men have more direct confrontation. In other words, they'll say like, they're more apt to actually uh, address something in the moment. Women are masters of side eye and bitchery and things that are like side doors to confrontation well, as opposed to direct confrontation, which is why guys get into things like I'm going to fucking blow your head off, which is unfathomable to me from the the female kingdom. What? I think women swallow anger at either itself or maybe father or spouse or whatever and then they parcel it out to all these people the person at customer service the person that cuts them off in traffic the the kid that is bringing them nerve pills whatever it is that's how i think women do business well i think the thing that i actually like uh, there's a lot of things i like about men but um in my experience the dudes that i know compartmentalize which kind of makes a lot. I hate it. See, I love it. I, I hate it. I love it. I love compartmentalizing. I mean, first of all, like if you look in my kitchen, everything's like where exactly where it should be. So I know where I can get what I need. And I think that I would prefer to be more compartmentalized because then you could deal with the thing that needs to be deal- dealt with then as opposed to like carrying everything around at the same time. And maybe I'm going to misplace my idea. It should have been over here. It's like, ah, it's too messy. Like I, I admire compartmentalization and maybe that's why I maybe I even I want it more so I'm gonna make an observation which is I think I could probably do with a little bit more compartmentalization and I think you and the male species could do with a little less and the male species why did you just say it's 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 a synonym right I wanted to be (laughs) you you wanted expansive we're we're trying to pretend that I'm actually a woman on this right people don't know such a dude they don't know you're such a dude and can I tell you like, I love you deeply, and we had this, like, really strong connection from the beginning. But, yes, just a few days ago, we met for the first time, and like, in real life. And I was sitting on your couch, and we were talking, and I started crying about something. And, and you went, like, with just, like, the tiniest tick of exhaustion in your voice, you really do cry a lot. <laughs> Sorry. And I was like, oh, my God, I've already annoyed her with my crying, and we're just getting started. It was like you had just started like the opening strings and somebody was like, is this done yet? <laughs> and I was like, Nancy, it's going to get so much worse. It's going to get so much worse. It's going to get so much worse. It you is. have no idea. And I just looked at you and I was like, I do this all the time. It's okay. I, I think I said as advertised. As, all right. Um, I think we have, uh, well, first of all, you've got a lunch and I've got to get out to New Jersey. I know, but there was one more thing we wanted yeah. to talk about. What was it? What? Well, it was something about Johnny's life and it was about his father oh well uh, do you remember it because I, I remember it do you not want to talk about no it here? no go for it. I mean no you tell I, I don't know exactly what you're going to say we, we don't plan these out by the way in case you thought we had this all scripted out um no I I remember listening about his father so go ahead and I'll add something if I have something to add well it was one of the most memorable moments of the trial for me was after he had told the story of his mother, um, who was a volatile, um, nomadic character who seemed to be sort of chased by demons. I want to make one more observation, which is that one of his early tattoos is of his mother. Yeah. 
and it's on his left or right forearm, I can't remember. And it says Betty Sue, and it's a heart with what appear to be kind of barbed wires coming in and out of it, which is sort of a heavy image to unpack if you want to. But it's very, very heavy to think about the fact that that's one of his earliest things that he wanted to scar himself with was his mom's name and where he's at right now. And then you hear what a completely challenging character she was to grow up with and underneath. I mean, yeah. you know, alongside. His father was quite a gentle character. As being portrayed by his son now. So, you exactly. know, we weren't there. So. Exactly. But Johnny tells a story about being 15 years old and coming home and his mother is in something of an antic state and she's saying, you know, he's gone, he's left and he sees that his father's clothes are gone and he goes to his father and what does his father tell him? This is right now I remember. His father says, you're the man now. And the reason we wanted to talk about that, and maybe it's the name of this episode, is because what that meant at that time was you're the head of the household now, or you're you're the you're going to be the male figure now in this thing. You're the man now. And 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 traditionally this was sort of a, you know, exalted, if not to say superior role, right? But all of a sudden, when Me Too rolled around, you're the man now didn't mean exactly the same thing. And in Johnny's family, to be the man in that family meant that you stepped up into the front line. Yeah. And that's what we've seen. Mm-hmm. To be continued, Sarah Hepla, Um Can we do one more thing? Yes. Oh, God. Okay. I'm still in my nightgown, by the way. And we are now, what are we doing here? Tell them, Sarah Hepla. Well, I bought you lots of presents. Yep. And one of them, <laughs> you sounded so exhausted. One of them <laughs> was Pop Rocks. Okay. Pop Rocks are crackling candy. This is in the, mine's in the original cherry flavor. <laughs> Pop Rocks were infamous in the 80s because there was an urban legend that Mikey from the cereal uh, commercial Life had died while taking them. Okay. They're extremely exciting candies. They're only 40 calories. And um, what else can I tell you about Pop Rocks? I have not had them since the 80s. So were we gonna, are they going to make a sound? Are we going to hold our mouths? We might die is the thing. Okay. All right. So it could be our first and last episode of Smoke Em If You Got Em. And now we're going to put something incendiary. How do you do it? How do you do it? How do you do it? I don't know it. Okay. Let's try one, two. All of it at once? No. I just have a little handful. How much do you have? That's fine. It's the same. Okay. Ready? One, two, three. Nothing's You're not popping. The crackling. Where? Don't you chew them? No, it's happening. It's happening. Okay. These are not. Isn't it happening? Not really. These are not. Try these. Try these. Are these. All right. It's happening. It's crackling in my head. All right. Hold on. Oh my God. I keep doing it. Whoa. Whoa. Listen. Oh my God. Can you hear it? That's cool. Can you hear it? That's pretty cool. Can you hear it? I do. Oh, that's just in your mouth. <laughs> the, the official candy of smoke if you got them. Listen, Pop Rocks, send them. We'll, we'll be your best um, and probably only advertisers. Um, okay, Sarah Hepla, have a great day, guys. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe. Um, we love you, and we'll see you soon. One more thing. One more thing. Smoke them if you got them. Smoke